cuz welcome to the next episode of how good it is and today we have a truly overstuffed episode with one of the yardbirds how good it is hi there i'm claude cole Jim McCarty is the original drummer for the Yardbirds, which, despite the fact that they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, doesn't often get mentioned as part of the pantheon of rock and roll these days. Instead, they seem to have the label of being the band that Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and Jeff Beck were in before they got big, which is silly because the Yardbirds were not only big, but they were influential back in the day. McCarty has written two books. The first is called Nobody Told Me, which is about his life with and after the Yardbirds. And now he's got a second book called She Walks in Beauty, My Quest for the Bigger Picture. The book starts almost exactly two years ago, the day his wife Lizzie died, and it works its way back and forth in time as he shares with us his lifelong pursuit of elements of the world which are just beyond our typical perception. And what has he discovered? Well, you're going to have to read the book, but he does talk about some of that here, as well as some of his insights into some of the Yardbirds' bigger hits. Incidentally, prior to the interview, I had sent him a note asking him if he'd heard a specific cover of the song For Your Love, because it's one of my favorite musical tracks, and I was so gratified to know that he did know it, and maybe a little bit more, which he talks about here. I did include a short clip of the recording here in the interview, but if you check out the website, I will link to the entire song. We communicated with each other uh, through Zoom uh, from opposite uh, sides of the Atlantic Ocean, and while we had some technical issues at first, we managed to persevere and had a fantastic conversation, despite the both of us suffering from allergies. For me, it was a lot of sniffling. For him, it was some throat clearing and coughing, but I think I managed to edit most of that out. So here's me with Jim McCarty. I I actually have both of your books. I picked up Nobody Told Me First and then my copy of um, the newer book, uh, She Walks in Beauty, arrived the day after. And I said, you know what? I'm going to put nobody told me away for the time being. And, <laughs> and, and just because I really do want to concentrate on the more recent book. And, you know, I mean, you've already done your press tour for nobody told me yes. uh, that was like, you know, a couple of years ago. Yes. And, uh, and so, and I, and I figured you've pretty much told whatever you're going to tell out of that anyway. And, yes. and, and I, you know, give you an opportunity to talk about the new stuff. And um, I have to say like, I was thinking about doing this interview like a couple of weeks ago, like right after Ann first contacted me and I got through like the first, like the introduction and the first chapter. And I was like, Oh, this is the date we have to talk. And no. I will tell you why, because I saw specifically early in the book, um, the, the, the date that your wife had died. Okay. June yes. 7th, 2020. And I'm so sorry about to hear about that. Yes. Um, but there's by a very strange coincidence, it, my mom died on June 8th, uh, oh, not the same funny. year, but it was a few years earlier. And, and it was like one of those things where I took as a sign, like, okay, mom's talking to me here. And, and basically this is some of the thrust of of what you're writing about is, is that once in a while, the people we have lost are, they do try to contact <laughs> us. They sure do try did. to send us messages. And you were talking specifically about, you know, birds and so forth and a little smudge in a photograph that you had taken and things like that. Yeah. And I've had plenty of times where 
see something and I say, gee, that's a little weird. That's kind of a coincidence. And then I check the date and it is somehow I can tie it to my mother. And I do have yes. to wonder, is this my mom sending me a message of some kind? And yes. I, so I wonder, like, I know that you have a long history of looking into things of the paranormal and, and you know, the, the whole life after death thing, which you know, some people kind of smirk at. I get it. Um, but how did you come around to this specific viewpoint? Well, I, I, yes, I, I've been interested for years and years, um, going back to my childhood, really, in all that stuff. Um, but the difference is now I'm, I'm suddenly faced with it. It's, it's sort of become my reality. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm right. I'm, I'm sort of stepped into the bubble, if you like, um, Whereas before I was outside looking in, now now I'm in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm now I'm in there, and it's part of my life, you know. Um, and it's become uh, really a, a journey, a journey of, um, of of consciousness for me to to find out all these things uh, firsthand, and you know. <laughs> Suddenly, all these things are happening to me, and uh, I, I'm actually faced with it all, uh, and getting ways of getting through it, and ways of understanding it. Uh, and I mean, I I understand it a lot more than I did, uh, but it's still nothing to what the real total understanding must be, you know. So I, I'm I'm still moving forward with it slowly, um, but uh, the the actual I, you know, I have to thank my wife for helping me through and uh, giving me all these signs and communicating and sort of pointing me in the right direction or whatever she's doing. Um, because it's been such a, a, a wonderful journey, even though I've been grieving at the same time. And, and, and what for you is the difference between this is probably a coincidence and this is a sign from Lizzie, and I'm going to even throw in one more. It's like, this is a sign, this is a message from Lizzie. Uh, yes, it's, very, it's a very fine line. Um, it's a very fine line. I, I, I suppose it's really within, within, within us or within me to uh, recognize, recognize it. And it's just a feeling, oh, oh that's definitely her. Um, yeah, now and then it's a bit vague as to whether it's just a coincidence. Um, but, but things, you know, uh, I've, I've opened my mind and I, I've been alert to all these things happening because you don't normally notice things. You know, I, I was boiling an egg one day and it was coming up to nine o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, I started it about two minutes to nine and then. All of a sudden, the the uh, timer on the oven suddenly went to twenty one hundred, which which has never happened before. And I, ha hang on, hang on here, what's going on? <laughs> and usually, there are things like that that are very funny, and they make you laugh, and you and the lights flashing, you know, when you have a certain thought, um, and it's quite funny. It's it's sort of really larger than life in a way. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and then tell me about the, the the story. Tell me the story of the photograph. 
That that was that was kind of interesting to me. Did, well, first, did you know when you first took the photograph that you were, um, that you were kind of replicating a photograph that you had taken earlier of Lizzie? Yes, I did. I I, I had some very nice friends with me, and um, uh, 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 I had that photo of Lizzie on that bridge, and then. Um, I mean, we, we we weren't looking for anything. We just thought it'd be nice to have a picture on the same bridge, and so we all stood there uh, having having that picture. <clears throat> My friend's wife took the took the picture on an actual camera, and we had no idea that something was going to appear like that. <laughs> I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sent me the photo, and I thought, "What's that in the middle? That great big." round blob you know uh and it was so so interesting and apparently this does happen you do get that they're called orbs and they they happen and i've i've seen you know videos of them from other people um sometimes they move around they shoot around the room and i've seen instances of other orbs so uh, from others so um, but I didn't know at the time. It's just, it was just very strange. Oh, and, and you said and it, it appeared brown in the photo? It was, uh, I don't know what color it was. It was like, uh, it was sort of a bluey color, wasn't it? I don't, I think. Okay. Well, I mean, in the book, it's a black and white photo. So yeah, it's black and white. Yeah, it was sort of a bluey, a bluey mauve color in the actual photo. And it was exactly where she was. She she was standing in the in the photo before. <laughs> yes, I did see that, and it, it was just yeah, kind of kind of that's that's kind of interesting to me though, because a lot of times when you see people representing stuff like this, and you know, oh, here's the mysterious you know thing in the picture, you know, more often than not, it comes off as like a kind of grayish white, and for it to be a color, yeah, you know, that that strikes me as a little bit different. Yes, yes, and um, she she communicates in colours, particularly um, a mauve colour. Sometimes I, I'm just sort of meditating and, and thinking about her, and uh, I, I would get my, my mind flooded with a sort of a mauve colour, uh, which is a very, uh, a very spiritual colour, apparently. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, 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 it's a, it's a, a very high, it's from the... Uh, the highest chakra in your body, the crown chakra, associated with that. So at the risk of repeating myself, the title of the book is She Walks in Beauty, My Quest for the Bigger Picture. And um, while there is a lot here about the spiritual journey that you've taken over the years since all the way back to when you were in the Yardbirds, um, there are some stories about your career as well. And so, you know, I don't want, you know, people to think that, well, this is all the book is about and just, you know, dismiss it out of hand. There's still, you know, a lot of good stories about your career with the Yardbirds and since then. And it's it's kind of funny because I reached out to a couple of people and I said, you know, do you have any questions like you might not have heard previously that that I could ask? And, you know, the first person goes like straight to Jimmy Page. And I'm like, really? He's like, okay. I was like, he's got to be tired of the Jimmy Page and the Eric Clapton questions. Like, what else you got me? But it does occur to me that changes like that to a band, I mean, these are not huge names yet, you know, but it's still got to 
affect the dynamic of the group when you lose a a player like when like when Eric Clapton leaves the band or when Jimmy Page leaves and and that kind of thing. That that's really got to to spin the dynamics a little bit, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yes. And we were very lucky because we had the, we had the you know waiting in the wings. Uh, <laughs> If you want to say that, um, we were lucky. We always fell on our feet with with someone someone else that was equally good. Um, but it, it was it was difficult. Well, with both Eric and Jeff, you know, they were they were basically quite unhappy in the group, and they didn't really want to work as a team. Um, and we were always a team when we started. I I always. I, I always considered it as a team. We all put in our little, our little bits, and we all, you know, moved forward together. Um, but they didn't want to do that, and I, I can understand. You know, they're, they're solo guys. They want to run the sh- run the show. Uh, they want to call the shots, and they were very unhappy going along with other guys like us. In the end, mm-hmm. um, but we were lucky to have the these great players but yes the dynamic change and the sound changed uh, you know uh, only subtly really between each of them but uh, I, I would say that Jeff Beck uh, gave the group the sound that everyone remembers and he played on the on the big songs you know all the uh, you know heart full of soul shapes of things and um, over on the sideways down all, all the songs that people remember mm-hmm. you guys like so many of, of the British bands you started out as like with kind of a bluesy sound like you know like the, the Stones would do the same thing like they were considered a blues band you guys were a blues band early on and and, and so I kind of understand the broader story of like you know where Clapton's like you know, he he hears you know the one the for your love, and then he just kind of loses it and says, "Hey, I thought we were going to do this other thing, and I'm out." You know, um, but it seems to me that there was still like a pretty strong blues component to the other music that you guys were doing, and 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 so it, it feels like there should be just a little bit more to the story than that. Yeah, well, we tried we tried to do a bluesy. Bluesy singles. Uh, the, the, the name of the game in those days was your hit single, and you all need, every band needed a hit single to to progress, to be you know to be noticed. Um, uh, and we were we were slightly behind because all our contemporaries had all had hit singles, um, uh, and we tried bluesy things and they didn't work for us. They, you know, I know. I wish you would. Was a single um, "Good Morning Little Schoolgirl." You know, they, they were they, they were good songs, but they weren't they weren't going to really get up there in the top ten. <laughs> yeah, and that's so, that's what we needed. So why why was the blues just so hot at that time in in the UK? Well, it it, it suddenly appeared about nineteen sixty two sixty three. Um, so, suddenly we started to hear, uh, you know, Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf, Chuck Berry, Slim Harpo, all, all those guys came as a, came at once. And um, I think it was the Stones, it was the Stones that uh, first picked it up in a big way. And um, well, I, I first went to see the Stones uh, with Paul Samuel Smith, our bass player, 
must have been about 1962, and they had another drummer, they didn't have Charlie, and they were playing the, the stuff, and I thought, I've never, I've never heard music like this. I've heard rock and roll, uh, you know, all, all the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly and all that, but it, it's not really the same. It's like It's got something different about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I thought, this is great. I, 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 I've never, and it made a big impact. And then I found out where it had come from, and uh, a lot of these records started to circulate in London, sort of an underground level. And, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people started to play them, you know, Zass of the Pretty Things and the Kinks, the Stones, of course, and uh, uh, Animals, you know, all, all these other bands, they, they picked up these songs on their repertoire. But really, it was all out of not many albums, probably about 10 albums um, comprising all these different blues artists uh, that we got our repertoire from. And we tried to avoid doing the same songs the Stones did. So we did different versions of, you know, we do another song by Chuck Berry and we do a, a different song by Howling Wolf and uh, make sure we didn't copy any of their, uh, any of their covers. And yeah, it just seems like you guys just also, as, 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 as a genre, really, not specifically Yardbirds, but like a lot of these bands, you just kind of added a little bit of extra um, power, like electricity to the, to, to the yes, basic yes. sound. Yes. And, and, and then we, we, we sort of did that for a while and then we wanted to spread out a bit and we thought, well, well let, let's make them, make these songs a bit different and, um, you know, change the rhythms within the song and, uh, do a bit of improvisation and, and, uh, put some sounds in. And of course, Chef had all these sounds. Uh, and he could he could play all these you know weird and wonderful sounds. He loved all that, um, and it went it went with the way we wanted to go. It was something. Oh yeah, we want to do uh, want to do this sort of music, but make it different. You know, uh, make it make it our own if you like. Let's talk about for your love. That was probably your first big one, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now let me, let me ask you this because I was that a genuine um, harpsichord that you guys were using, or was it some other kind of studio trick? Oh no! <laughs> no, they didn't have tricks in those days. <laughs> uh, you know, it's all tricks now, isn't it? Um, no, it was a harpsichord. It was Paul Samuel Smith's idea mm-hmm. because we we'd heard the Graham Goldman uh, demo, you know, the little uh, version he'd done himself. Um, and it had a 12-string guitar, I think, and bongos. Um, I don't know if it had the... It might have had the the time change in the middle. I can't remember. Uh, but we were sort of quite faithful to that. But instead of the 12-string, we used the we, we used the harpsichord. Uh, and then a bowed, a bowed bass playing the, like a string line. Now, how'd you get a hold of the song? Well, it it, it was uh, brought brought to our manager by um, a publisher from uh, Feldman's that became like EMI Music eventually, um, and he'd seen us playing with the Beatles um, at their Christmas show in Hammersmith in 1964. Um, and we were on the bill, and he he, he saw us, and he had that he had this. Uh, demo disc and, and uh, sent it round to our manager, Giorgio Gomelski, 
and we went up, went to his apartment and had a listen to it. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. This is maybe not a blues song, but it's the sort of song that would uh, be a hit. Um, and it's it's moody and it's a you know it's a good song. It's uh, unusual, and it and it would suit us. So we all went with it. Uh, apart from Eric, who he did play on it, but he didn't really like it. So mm-hmm. there you go. And you, I get, it's, this is kind of silly, but one of the things that, that attracts me to the song is I, th- this is one of those things that I guess, you know, it just it either speaks to you or it doesn't. But one of the things I really like about it is in the lyrics where you kind of break a line into two, you know, so it, so it's like he starts a sentence in one line and then continues it in the next. And I don't know. Yeah. I just, I just, I just kind of like stuff like that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, little... a, cl- it's, it's a clever song. It's, it's unusual and it's, it's very moody, you know, it's in a, a minor key. Uh, and of course that version that I'd heard, you mentioned uh Krishna Das, I've heard that already, and um, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful version of it, you know. Um, uh, it makes it even more moody. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, the story behind that supposedly is that he was he was fooling around with the chanting thing, and he kind of realized that he was using a lot of the same chords. So he yeah. just started goofing around and and started singing for your love, and said, "Oh, this this actually works here," you know. Yes, it fit it fitted perfectly um, the way that the way they did it, and it was interesting how it suddenly appeared. And of course, it was it was used you know used in a different way. For your love was to his. Uh, his master or you know his his god mm-hmm. uh, and and it was a, a, a it was a lovely lovely chant devotional yeah. devotional chant so let, let me and let me ask you this and i'm sure this is one of those questions you get asked a million times but but first i'm sure that you know people hammer you all the time with hey have you heard this cover of your song and do you have a favorite cover of of well we'll start with for your love and then of a yardbird song uh let me see. I, I'd say I'd say that was the best cover, my, uh, for my money. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that Krishna Das one, <laughs> if you could call it a cover. But I'd say that was a, a very very good version um, of that song. Um, yeah, there's there's other people that did it, but not so not so different to ours. And then what what about like just in general other Yardbird songs? What would be one of your favorites? Uh. 
Well, Shapes of Things has been done quite a bit. Um, uh, 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 Jeff Healy did a good version. David Bowie did, did a nice version. Uh, oh, and the, of course the latest one is Deep Purple. Uh, Deep Purple do a, ver- a very good version, actually. Very... Um, fantastic guitar uh, uh, really really well done it's actually really good i wanted to talk a little bit about heart full of soul which is probably one of my favorites uh, of the yardbirds and i i really love the deep echoes especially in the background singing and and you know it just it's got this really cool sound to it and um is is there a is there a cool story behind that one i hope <laughs> <laughs> oh yes there is yes there is uh, we were we were booked to go in the studio to, to do it uh, we'd heard the demo it's another graham gorman song so we'd heard we'd heard the version by him uh and it was very similar had bongos on and the 12 strings stuff um and we went in the studio for the session at one evening um and we looked in the uh <laughs> We looked in the vocal booth and there was a guy playing sitar uh, with another guy playing tablas. And Giorgio, our manager, thought, oh, this would suit the song. Um, so uh, we'd, we'd try the sitar playing the opening riff. You know, da 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 And it actually sounded quite nice. Um, but it, 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 it was a bit weak. Um, compared to what we needed, as you said before, we had a very electric, very sort of energetic sound, particularly with Jeff. And it, it just didn't really happen at the beginning with the sitar, uh, although it was a nice. And the version is there somewhere. It came out. Um, but Jeff said, oh, I can play this very easy. I have the fuzz box and he played it in five minutes and uh, that that really worked and so we we never never really used the sitar version um except later on it came, it came out as a sort of special you know collector's collector's version really <laughs> Even darkest thing, thinking, my Lord, only where is she? Tell me where. 
My understanding is that there was a review at the time that described it as like having an oriental touch, which yes. I don't think I quite get. I understand like the feeling of Raga Rock, but oriental touch seems a little bit unusual. But you, it sounds like you would agree with this, that, that with that with that review. Yes, I would. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, it sort of worked for a sitar. It did work, but the sound, the sound didn't really work. Um, it wasn't a really our sound. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, yes, it was. I mean, uh, Ravi Shankar and all that stuff was, became very popular in those days, and we loved all that stuff as well. You know, loved the loved the Indian music, and I, I, I still do. I still love it. Um, yeah, and uh, it was it was something that was going around on a sort of underground thing uh, uh, in the sixties. Anyway, and it sort of fitted fitted our, our our style, you know, and I I thought it worked very well. There there are a couple of live albums that you folks did, and it seems like maybe more than a typical band would release. Um, and and I'm I'm kind of wondering about the the thinking behind that, and then also your second American album was called Having a Rave Up with the Yardbirds. Yes. Where one side was studio recordings and the other side was live recordings. Okay. And, <laughs> and, and I'm kind of wondering about the decisions that went into that. I think it's really cool. Like your, your, your live performances are, are neat, especially since you do have this habit of, or, you know, of, of you start with the basic song and then you just kind of go into this extended riffing before you yeah. come back around to it. And I think that's, that's really neat. It, it, it's you at the same time, you're not necessarily, you know, killing time the way some uh, jam bands would. No, no, we like to improvise, and, and we had that jazzy jazz thing going as well, uh, especially things like Smoke That Lightning, which was all in one key of the whole song. Uh, so we needed to take it around in different places. And it was nice working off each other, and sometimes in a live show that would work really well. Um, they would all come together and we'd... We'd be playing as a unit, really, really great, you know, and other times didn't work. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, our, our, our live sound was always um, always very strong, and we all, that's why we, we recorded our first album live at the Marquee, because it, uh, that, that worked a lot better, because, the, I don't know, the sound in the studios in, in England wasn't so bright wasn't so good at the time it was difficult to to get uh to get a real punchy sound um and we found it improved uh, you know through the through the the end of the 60s it got a lot better mm-hmm. and it was better in america you know a lot of our a lot of our recordings we we did there you know we recorded in um chess studios in chicago we did shapes of things there and we did some other stuff uh, down in sun in uh, memphis uh, and we got a much better sound uh at, at the time because the american engineers were were superior yeah i was i was just about to ask about that is do you do you you're finding a difference between you know studios in one place versus studios in another does it boil down to just the engineer or is there something about the space or is it just you know because you're in 
here I am in Chicago and I've got like Chicago energy going on or is there <laughs> something else attached to that? Well, it's a combination, you know, you're going in chess studios, you think, oh, all these fantastic blues records are made here. Or, uh, same with, the same with Sun and you, you would be excited. So that was that was all part of it. Uh, but it was like geared, it was geared for a good sound and the, the engineers knew what they were doing. And I remember going into chess um, and recording shapes of things uh, and I said, okay, well, wh where's the drum kit? I need I need to have a go at the drum kit. <clears throat> I said, "Oh, it's over there," and it was a sort of beaten up old kit. It had all this. Uh, I had a, like a bag of bag of cement in the, in the uh, bass <laughs> drum. <laughs> and I thought, "Oh my God, well, this drum kit's terrible. I, I don't know if they get a good sound, but, but they did, and they had it all worked out. This was the sound that they used for the drum kit. They used for all the great." blues record so uh, uh so it sounded great uh, and they they knew they knew what they were doing they've been doing it for a long time uh, and then no and then success. and then in sun you know we were working with sam phillips and uh he recorded uh elvis and howling wolf and all that stuff so he he really knew what he was doing yeah well it's not like the uh, guys at emi were any slackers though i mean <laughs> <laughs> I know, but they were all slightly behind at the time. I don't know. They they got better, but um, no. Uh, but they learned a lot from the American American engineers. I'm sure. Yeah, I think from the stories that I've read, it, it seems like you know the 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 folks at least at EMI were maybe a little bit behind the times to 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 a certain extent in the sense that they were kind of late to adopt some of the techniques and even some of the equipment, which is oh, why yeah, you end yeah, up yeah. with like, you know, it taking forever for the Beatles to get like up to four tracks when they record. And, you know, and, and things like <laughs> yeah. that. And there are stories about them like sneaking into closets and, and stealing equipment so that they could try it out. And, and and you know, the engineers having a fit later on. I'm sure. And funnily enough, the the studios in um in Germany and the Scandinavians, and some of the live stuff we did there was really good. It was it was superior to uh, the English sound. Um, I mean, we didn't record any um, uh, studio stuff, but the live the live recordings that come out of some of those German uh, TV shows, they really still sound great. Um, mm. So I don't I don't know what was going on in England they were slightly behind especially in the BBC as well because um, we go in the BBC and they tell us to turn down oh turn down the the guitar you know and when you turn the guitar down you just don't get that sound the sound it just sounds weedy you don't there's no power in it and it was almost like they were like the men in white coats you know in the science <laughs> fiction <laughs> Of course, they, we'd record the songs at the BBC, and they say, "Oh, don't don't worry about if you make a mistake, because uh, it, they'll only play it once; they'll never hear it again." And then it comes out fifty years later. You know, the best of the Arbors on BBC. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, I was listening to what was that long ago? Just maybe a couple of weeks. Uh, it was a Jimi Hendrix BBC session, and. I thought it sounded really good, actually. I was like kind of surprised that you know, this is something that they're recording for a radio broadcast. 
I was like, maybe because I was listening to it through my car radio, that was like, okay, it's the same technology almost. And you know, maybe that's, that's what made it sound good. And I think that's maybe part of the calculus that goes into when BBC makes a recording. I'm thinking about, um, the folks at Motown who would engineer records specifically to sound good on car radios and cheap transistor radios. And what they would do is they would make a test pressing and then they would play it on the crummiest record player they could find (laughs) to simulate (laughs) what it would sound like on a car radio. And if it sounded good that way, then they released it. That's right. They had, they had that all worked out for playing in, in on little speakers. Yeah. But the bit, of course, by the time Jimi Hendrix came along, I think that was like um, late late sixties, wasn't it? Yeah, sixty eight, sixty nine, or something. Um, that BBC had improved, uh, and some of the sessions got a much better sound. Yeah. All right. Um, let me come back to having a rave up because, as I said, it was like that two sided thing: studios on one side, live on the other. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering about the. First, the, the 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 decision that went into something like that, and well, I'll I'll save the next question for after. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. <clears throat> well, we we had no control over what because we were signed up, you know, to Epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were well, we actually signed to EMI, but EMI all our EMI uh, recordings went through Epic. Which was part of uh, Capital, uh, not Cap, no, part of uh, CBS. Right. And um, they they more or less did what they like. They didn't ask us, oh, is this what what the band want? They just uh, we had no we had no control over what they put out. Um, and a lot of those early early albums were compilations of singles and recordings from studios and live. Songs, as you say, um, and that that was nothing to do with us. That was just the way they wanted to market the band. Mm-hmm. And the the other thing that kind of amused me was the liner notes on this album. And I, I'm I'm sorry, my camera's not working because you can see I have it in my hand here. Um, this okay. is actually this is actually a, a it's a it's a demo copy that I managed to get my hands on only this week. Um, but there, there are liner notes written by somebody named Connie Denave, and uh, my understanding is that she is a uh, uh, she was a, a PR person. Yeah, I don't know if yeah, she's yeah, yeah. And and one of the things it says, well, when you hear the Yardbirds kind of rave up, you'll hear some basic rock and roll and some real old fashioned blues. That makes sense. You'll hear simple, straightforward country music played with big band drive. And I was like, I'm not necessarily <laughs> getting a country feel out of this. Did you listen to this album, lady? <laughs> I know she was she was pretty famous. She was the uh, Epic's PR woman. Yeah. Uh, and I remember when we first went to America, probably late '65. Uh, I might be wrong. I think it was late '65. Uh, I think she came to meet us when we went in the the hotel. We checked in. Uh, she came to meet us, and she was, you know, making funny remarks like. Um, Oh you yes you'll have to you'll have to put makeup on those spots. <laughs> <laughs> you know sort of old fashioned stuff. Oh you'll have to cover up your spots for the tele, tele television and um, things like that and you can't be seen smoking on photos and all that they don't, they don't want you to do that. 
Hmm. <laughs> it was very, so, so it was like something out of the 50s. Right. And one of the other tracks on this album, it's the end of side one, is, is Train Kept a Rollin', which feels to me like you guys basically set the blueprint for every recording of Train Kept a Rollin' that followed. I mean, this is not your song. You know, this, it's, it's, I, I think it's a, it's, it's traditional practically, isn't it? It was like just something that was found in manuscript and somebody set it to music. I, I think it's like maybe even public domain. Um, no, 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 no. It, it was an old blues singer called Tiny Bradshaw. Oh. And his version is totally different. It's just a 12 bar swing, mm -hmm. like a, like a shuffle, you know, the train get the rolling all night long. <laughs> And uh, it, it, it was the um, the version that we did. We we based it on the. Um, I'm trying to think what, what the band was called now. Uh, it was a, a. I'll think about it. I'll think about it in a minute. But it's the um, famous. Oh, the Burnett Brothers. That's it. Sorry. Oh. Yeah. The okay. the mind's woken up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the Burnett Brothers. They did the version with the with the riff. You know. Um, and Jeff Beck had had that version, and he said, "Oh, I, I love this song. We should do this." And then we took it on a bit more from their version. Um, da, 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 da. That, that that was already there. Yeah. But I always it, thought it was a great a great guitar riff, you know. Yeah. Well, there's a story about um, the song "Louie Louie," that um, after the after the instrumental, the the singer comes in too early he starts to sing the next verse and he realizes he's come in too early and the drummer covers with a fill and then he sings all right <laughs> and, and but the thing is that's become the template for singing louie louie now yeah. is you, <laughs> everyone you start that. to sing you stop and then you sing again right and it, it feels like the same thing as like everybody does the yardbirds version of train kept a rolling nowadays <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i don't know i don't know who else did it apart from aerosmith Oh, there were other people, Chesterfield Kings or someone. Oh, no, they did another one. Uh, I can't remember who else did the train get to rolling, uh, apart from Aerosmith. But there yeah, must that's be probably the most, the most famous there must, version. Yeah, there must be other versions, not so well known. Um, I know Led Zeppelin did it, actually. Yeah, that well, they would Which have done it because they did. It was probably a carryover from Jimmy Page. Well, they they took they were doing some of our dates when they started. I think they were they were going as the New Yardbirds, mm -hmm. and there were dates that we couldn't fulfil. So uh, they, they I think they played all our songs. Yeah, and uh, Johnny Burnett. Johnny Burnett, there you go. But again, everybody's everybody's coming back to you guys on that. So it was just <laughs> but that's nice. kind of kind of cool and interesting. And um paul samuel smith is listed as the musical director on this particular i think i think he's on other tracks too uh, on other albums as well with that specific title what does a musical director do that say a producer does not <laughs> well it was yes i suppose it was uh yes it was uh, a bit tricky to be, say i'm the producer i mean he became a, a a great producer for cat stevens and other people but um mm -hmm. It was probably one step up that ladder, you know. I'm the musical director. Um, it's only because he had a few ideas of how it should sound. He, he was always into into the sound uh, of the band, and he was very good at hearing how we should sound. Uh, and he had good good ideas. Uh, you know, a lot of them went into "For Your Love," for instance. Mm. Um, 
but I, I think um, Giorgio Gamowski probably called himself the producer because he paid for the sessions. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it was. So I, I guess that that sounds like then there would be um, more more of a like a collaborative uh, kind yeah. of role with the producer and or the engineer. Yeah, some, 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 uh, well, look, the one album which was called The Yardbirds that uh, became known as Roger the Engineer, mm-hmm. um, some of the tracks Paul, Paul didn't play bass. He, he, was, he was just in the uh, control room, and we had, a, we had a bass player playing with us, just, just a few of the tracks, um, not, the, not the tracks we played live. Paul played on those, but I, I think about three tracks. Three or four tracks uh, Paul didn't play. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Renaissance. This 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 is interesting to me, if only because I you know I was like going through the used record stores, you know, just see if I could you know beef up my catalog and you know just get back into not just the hits but you know some of the other stuff. And I found that like well, first Yardbirds albums are kind of fi- hard to find. And I did say something to one of the owners, the store owner. He's like, yeah, they're still popular. I was like, well, that's you know good for him. I mean, you know, unfortunately, he's not making any money off the resales in the record stores. But <laughs> where, 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 where was this store? Uh, I, there were a couple of stores. I tried a couple in Baltimore, where I live, and I found a couple of albums that actually originated in Europe. So one is from Germany, and the other is from um, Switzerland. Right. Yeah. And um, Rave Up, I found here in Baltimore, and then I found Box of Frogs. I was in Myrtle Beach for a weekend a couple weeks ago and there was a there was a, a record store i hadn't been in and one of the things i'm learning is as you go from city to city you know basically what people were buying at any given time is going to change from location to location so what you're going to find in the used record stores is going to also take a different tenor and yeah. so so you know i i was so it's when i'm in south carolina for instance it's easier for me to find like old shag records and that that sort of thing yes and and and, but yardbirds are still very popular box of frogs is tough to find i couldn't find any jim mccarty era renaissance there were plenty of renaissance albums to be found but none that had you as a as a performer on it so i'd like to hear the story behind your participation with that band uh well we we formed the band <laughs> we said we started it i mean it was started by me and keith ralph the singer yeah. and uh we we'd come to the end of the arbors we we'd really had enough of playing that stuff at the time and we were very tired and we'd been on the road for a long time and we just wanted to do something fresh um and we'd written some songs uh, and we wanted to make the best out of them. So cut a long story short, we formed another band and it was quite different. Uh, it had the keyboards in, uh, uh, John Hawking on piano and keyboards, who was actually in a, a good rock band, the Nashville Teens. They were quite big in, in England. Um, and um, he just had the idea, oh, we'd, he'd play a bit of classical here and there. Um, because he, you know, he he was classically taught, and it and it really worked, and it worked because he could play rock and roll as well. So we did both, um, but the classical sound was something that we took up in the band. 
it, it became like a, it was like an experiment uh, or a, it was like everything else you know it was an accident at first <laughs> but it worked it worked and we kept going with it and uh, it created that sound uh, and finally we you know we just did the two albums and went back on the road and thought oh no we're back we're back where we were really we were just on the road again you know just playing and playing <clears throat> and um so the, we sort of left and the, a new band took over so probably all the all the stuff you saw was the new new group yeah now was there any overlap between the two or was it just you know somebody else just kind of picked up where you left off well slowly that yeah slowly one person changed and one dropped out and i think john hawkin was the last one uh to to be in the band uh, and he brought in um uh mickey dumford who was in the new band uh, who played in the national teams with him earlier um and he he turned out to be a pretty good songwriter and also you know he wrote songs with um betty thatcher that i i written with before um um she was she was a poet from from Cornwall and I I started to write songs of her poetry it was a sort of project and then um I lost touch with the band I, I was writing songs for the new band too and I lost touch with them mm -hmm. and Mickey Dunford took over as the songwriter and they, they did some great songs you know um things like ashes are burning you know it's a it's a really good song yeah yeah um I'm, I, I guess this this might be kind of akin to the asking about covers but i gotta wonder is it is it a little bit weird when you see the band that you form like still out there and doing stuff and you know and you're not necessarily part of it, it is does that does that feel strange at all when you're like in the moment like during the 70s and 80s uh, well, it, yes, it can be a bit weird, but uh, it, I, I, I thought it was very honourable because I, I, I got asked to play at their 50th anniversary mm -hmm. show, which was about three years ago, and uh, I went to the Keswick in uh, Philadelphia and played a couple of shows as well beforehand um, and played uh, acoustic guitar. You know, it was it was good. It was fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're they're a great band because they had the whole orchestra playing with them too, um, and Annie had been in the band uh, well, since since we split really nineteen nineteen seventy two I think she joined and she'd been in the band all that time and all the musicians had changed, but it was a great to show and they had a great great band they were lovely people and. Uh, I was very honored to be asked to play it and uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, she's got a fabulous voice. I love the I love yeah, her sound. Yeah. And then what about Box of Frogs? You said in in your book that they, well they just never really took off. I I really enjoyed their sound, frankly. It was a little bit retro, but I maybe that's what the appeal was for me, but but when you say it didn't really take off, was that as far as like well it didn't sell so we bailed out or was it more along the lines of you know, uh, we've kind of done what we're going to do here and let's move on. Well, it, it wasn't a totally committed, uh, I'd say everyone involved, mm -hmm. uh, they weren't totally committed to it. Um, uh, you know, some some of the guys were doing other things. Um, 
it, it was basically a Yardbirds reunion. That, yeah, that's the that way it was did. framed. Yeah. So we got we got, some of us got back together, Paul and Chris and myself, and started <clears throat> started to write uh, new songs. We always enjoyed uh, seeing each other anyway, and we were talking about. You know, we always had that sort of common ground, you know, like a family. And uh, we started to write more and more songs and it, it suddenly got bigger and bigger and um, became became a project. And then we, we started to record an album and we asked Jeff Beckin and uh, other people we knew, uh, you know, Steve Hackett and other other Rory Gallagher and all those people and it became good fun and uh I think the only problem was that uh we we never toured we never played a live gig it was just recording uh, if we'd have gone and toured America a couple of times it probably would have taken off um but, but that was it and uh, uh, you couldn't really you couldn't really go any further with it once once we we'd finished yeah, I think there's there's also even this was that was the first album was 1984, right? Yeah. So, so I think there might have still also been a mentality of like if a band is a band is either together or they're not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you you yeah. couldn't necessarily just like split off and do a solo album, do your own project, and then come back to the band, which you know yeah. kind of happened to the Beatles. It kind of happened to Kiss. It kind of happened to there were there were. Uh, there were several bands where you could say that that kind of thing. Like this guy was just itching to do a different project until the band had to break up, you know, as opposed to, well, let them go do the different project and come back. And it was really around that time. That's when Mick Jagger did a, a solo album was yeah, around, was around that I same remember. time, but Rolling Stones are still a thing, you know? <laughs> I remember. <laughs> yes. It didn't work. And, uh, you know, they, as I said, the commitment wasn't there with the band to, to mm -hmm. make it any bigger. But it, it was fun while it lasted. We did some we did some good songs. Actually, um, we still play, because uh, I still play in the Arbord. Um, uh, we, we're coming over in September. We're playing <clears throat> some dates on the East Coast. Um, we still played back where I started, which was one of the big uh, Box of Frog songs. And I sing, um, actually. I sing it. <laughs> do you? Okay. <laughs> um, tell me about Stairway. That was an interesting story. Yeah, that was something that uh, just arrived. I mean, uh, it, I went through a time when it was difficult to get any uh, of my material heard. It was like you had to get a you know, record deal, you know. It was... Uh, to get it out there uh, and uh, I had various ideas for things and um, I, I was spending quite a bit of time with Louis Sinamo that was the bass player in, in Renaissance um, and we always got on very well we were quite <clears throat> spiritually orientated and um, we used to listen to, to, to meditation sort of music and, and uh, uh, music from a genre of, uh, well, shall we say, new age, but anything <clears throat> uh, to do with, you know, massage or, or meditation or uh, relaxation. And we had ideas, and it was it was just a fun thing because I would I went on to playing keyboards, and Louis was a bass player, and he 
he was playing acoustic guitar, so we weren't on our real instrument. So it was it, it was just fun. It was like almost like an amateur project, but there was quite a market for that sort of music in England. Um, a lot of shops that sold that sort of music with everything else, like the candles and the incense and the uh, you know the Buddhist books and all that. So mm-hmm. so we we actually um, what we did did quite well, uh, and we you know I think one of our records sold. Uh, like a hundred thousand or something, something crazy, you know. And that was on cassette, besides. <laughs> yeah, we started on cassette, and then they 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 went up to CD. Interesting. Like around that period, I was working in a record store, and this was as the CDs were starting to take over the world. And um, the store that I worked in, we sold a lot of New Age, but it was almost entirely the Wyndham Hill label. And so, yes. You know, we wouldn't. They, they were like really dominant at that time. So, New World, nope, hadn't heard of it. It was like a lot of these other. There's a bunch of New Age labels, but Wyndham Hill was like just everything to. It seemed like to the industry, like if you wanted a New Age, you went to Wyndham Hill. Well, it, it didn't feel like it. Like there were any other labels, and you know, looking back, I see, geez, there were a bunch of them. But I think part of it was also just like maybe they had the PR, maybe they had something else. Maybe it was just a word of mouth and just everybody in the neighborhood where my store was located, you know, thought I want a Wyndham Hill CD. And yeah, they, they did it. They did it very well. Didn't they? That they had, uh, what that, that piano player, uh, that sold a lot of records, at Wyndham Hill, didn't they? Um, can't remember his name. Uh, um, I, I can't remember, but uh, funny enough, a couple of months ago, I heard this great track, Winston, George that, Winston. That's it, George Winston. But I heard this track uh, a couple of months ago. Um, it just came up because I was doing all this um, medium stuff. You know, I was studying, doing a medium course with Suzanne Giesman, who's a, a, a teacher, a very good teacher of mediums, uh, and a very, very well set up person. And... Um, I just heard this this music and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I, I have to get this. And uh, it was on the Hearts of Space label. Do you remember that? I do, actually, yes. <laughs> I thought, I'm never going to get hold of this. How will I get it? It was by somebody called Raphael. Dude, they had a, they had a, a radio program too, didn't they? It was like a syndicated show? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Hearts of Space. It was, uh, yeah, it came out of San Francisco, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I had to get it. Of course, I'm I, I'm very determined with these sort of things, uh, and I managed to get the CD on Amazon.com. Um, I was very pleased. So I, I can I can play it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. It's a very good a very good. Uh, he's a very good piano. You know, new age pianist. Let's say. I love. I'd, I would love to hear some of that material because I just just to get into something a little bit, something that isn't Wyndham Hill. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. We were on that. We were on the smaller. Uh, I think it was called New World. New. First of all, it was New World cassettes. Cassettes, yeah. And then it changed to New World music. I mean, it was just like a little, uh, a little company, you know, with an office in someone's back room. <laughs> It was just like, uh, 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 you know, it's very, very, uh, very nicely done when it started. 
Yeah. Now I have to wonder if there wasn't a little bit confusion because also at that time you had the, the genre of world music becoming a oh, thing. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, and all the Peter Gabriel stuff. Um, right, right. Yeah. Uh, WOMAD and all those festivals. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was something that was, that it was sort of similar, but not, not quite the same. Mm-hmm. All right. Now you mentioned a few minutes ago about like going to a, a medium course, but as far as I know, you don't consider yourself a medium, do you? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> no, that, that, that brings up a funny story. Um, mm-hmm. Because on the course you had to practice with people and um, I, I never, I, I didn't do it for that purpose. I, I just did it so I could communicate with my wife um, and go, it gave me more and more clarity and it worked. But um, they said, oh, yeah, you know, for your homework, you should practice being a medium. So I practiced with a couple of friends and actually I did quite well. <laughs> and, and, and somebody said, well, why don't you have a radio show where, you know, rock, rock star Jim McCarty d- takes your, um, you know, <laughs> connects with your relatives. <laughs> Nobody's done it before. But I, I'd never do that. <laughs> So the Yardbirds are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? Yes. So were were you at the ceremony? Yes, yes, that was in '92. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was me, great. Tell me a little bit of that. Did you get to like see the museum itself and all, or was that open yet? Or uh, they didn't do. Uh, yeah, I don't think it was open then. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't do it in the museum. They did it in. Uh, uh, in New York, in, in the Waldorf Astoria. Okay. The you know the um, the, the the special evening celebration. Um, yeah, I don't think the Cleveland Museum was finished then. Uh, I don't, I, do they do it in Cleveland now? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's in Cleveland. <laughs> oh, they do it there. Yeah. Yeah. But I I have been to to the museum and gave a few things to them, and we actually did. I think. A few well, it must be good. Ten years ago, we we went and played there um, and did a Q and A with with the with the audience, and it, it was nice. So and they treated us really well. That was it was nicely set up. It was well done. Now you you still do tour, as far yeah. as I know. Well, you said you were doing something this fall, and we have a very good band. I mean, they're all they're all American apart from me. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I'm the only um, British invasion person left, <laughs> but, they're, but they're all very good. They're all very good players. And uh, bass player Kenny Aronson, who's uh, uh, who's um, uh, played it with a whole load of load of bands, you know, top bands in his time. He's a very experienced guy, and he's a great Yardbirds fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, Godfrey, Godfrey Townsend. And then there's John Iden, who's the singer, and he was uh, the singer on the Birdland album, which was right back in well, 2003, I think, that mm-hmm. came out. Do you, do you have specific dates or locations at this point yet, or it's still taking shape? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we're playing something called the Big, the Big E Festival, uh, which is in the Massachusetts, uh, Springfield, in Massachusetts. Uh, we're playing there for two 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 days or two nights or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's our key date, and then we're playing some 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 clubs like Daryl's house uh, and the um, 
Philadelphia uh, winery. Things like that we're playing. Uh, not not a huge tour, but uh, we, we haven't actually played because of the pandemic. You know, sure. a lot of these dates got put off, so uh, we're just finally going to do them. So it's been a couple of years. Well, this is cool. Philadelphia is not a long drive from Baltimore, so I'm uh, make a point of coming to that show. Oh no, we're playing. Uh, we're playing at Annapolis. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, we're playing down there. In that, uh, what's that club called? Uh, Ramshead, maybe. Ramshead, exactly. Yeah, we're cool. playing there. That's a fun venue. Okay, Ramshead. I'm writing that. I'm literally writing that down as we speak, so I can. Yeah, I can't tell you the date. It's. I think it's sort of late late September, sort of twenty first September, something like that. But it's all written on our website. Let me let me ask you this: Are the other? Do you have any um any any broader causes that that are like are pet projects for you? Um, not not particularly, but um, no, not particularly. But but my wife actually had a sarcoma. Um, which is a, a sort of a ag- very aggressive form of cancer, mm-hmm. which, which spread, you know, it was a sort of a little lump in her arm that spread all around. And the uh, the U.S. Sarcoma Foundation was was very helpful. They, they suggested some good things. And, um, yeah, if I, I was going to be involved in a charity, it would be them. Um no, but I, I'm interested in, in things, you know, helping helping people, and um, I, I, I certainly hope it helps people that are grieving and gives them some understanding about what happens, uh, you know, when, when we pass over that we we don't really die, we're still around. Yeah, uh, I think I, I think it, you know, I I I mean, it's been like nine years today, as I said earlier, for my mom, and. Yeah, I, I think it. Yeah, it gave me like a little bit of clarity and just some food for thought. And I, I, I think in that respect, you have succeeded. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, good. I'm, I'm sure she's she's around now. You know, it's a it's her birthday, and uh, she's she's probably around uh, wanting you know wishing you the best for this interview. And uh, where can folks find you in the social medias, as they say? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook, Jim McCarty. There's a there's another Jim McCarty, you know, the guitar player from Cactus, mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah, and in Detroit. So you, you you got to make sure it's me. But uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on the uh, James James. I think it's jamesmccarty.com is my website. And uh, the yarbirds.com is the official Yarbirds website. And the, but there's a Facebook groups. So there's a few Yarbirds authorized and uh, uh, you know various Yarbirds Facebook groups as well. So you can find out what's going on if you go into the Yarbirds. Fabulous. Okay. Well, I can see that it. I know it's late for you because you do live in France now. We didn't really talk about that. And but I can see it's it's getting dark over there. <laughs> like you used to be, it used to be much brighter image that I was talking to, and now it's much darker. But at the same time, my camera's not working, so you don't see anything at all. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, twenty five past nine here now. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time with me. Uh, this is this was fantastic. Right. And, okay. And so uh, is there is there anything else that you want to share with us that uh, you haven't had an opportunity to? 
Well, I don't. I, I don't think so. It's just that I feel, you know, I'm very, I'm very happy with my life, um, even though I've been through a few things, you know, particularly the last couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. But it's taught me a lot, and there's always more to learn. And um, I, I, I did a song, actually, a solo song called Charmed, uh, which you can see if you, you look up Jim McCarthy Charmed. It's on YouTube. There's a there's a, a quite a funny video. Mm. Um, but I, that's the way I feel about my life. I I, I do feel charmed. Uh, I feel there is somebody looking after me, which is uh, a nice feeling. Um, and I'm 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 very grateful for my life and uh, and all the people that have helped me. How about that? His book is called She Walks in Beauty, My Quest for the Bigger Picture, and you can get it through your local bookseller or through Amazon, all the usual suspects there. Definitely worth picking up. Uh, Jim McCarty is embarking on a Yardbirds North American tour starting in Cape Cod in mid-September, and as it turns out, finishing at the Ram's Head in Annapolis, Maryland. And then early in 2023, he'll be part of the Flower Power Cruise, which is already sold out, but there is a wait list available. You can get more information on all of this at jamesmccarty.com or at theyardbirds.com. The Sarcoma Foundation of America can be found at www.curesarcoma.org. They have clinics in 37 states across the country, plus they're deeply involved in research and clinical trials. And that, my friend, is a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. Thanks once again to Jim McCarty for his time and his effort. And... uh, to Ann Layton for helping me to put the whole thing together. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating or better yet, a review somewhere. And now you can support the show over at patreon.com slash how good it is. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash how how good it is pod or you can check out the show's website howgooditis.com where you will find a few extra bits thank you so much for listening i'll talk to you next time how good it is